We'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for December 5th, 2010. We're going to pick up where we left off regarding um, the Muslims, and we're going to be looking at an article entitled, Allah is the Pagan Moon God. And the first thing I give you is a, as a, the cover to a track that Chick puts out, Chick Tracks, and it's called, Allah Had No Son. And um, it's one of the many tracks they have regarding the, the Muslims that are really excellent. Okay, it's this starts out by saying, entitled, Archaeology of the Middle East. Okay, The religion of Islam has its focus of a worship of a deity named Allah. The Muslims claim that Allah, in pre-Islamic times, was the biblical god of the patriarchs, the prophets, and the apostles. The issue is thus one of continuity. Was Allah the biblical god or a pagan god in Arabia during pre-Islamic times? The Muslims' claim of continuity is essentially is essential to their attempt to convert Jews and Christians. For if Allah is part of the flow of divine revelation in Scripture, then it is the next step in the biblical religion. Thus, we should all become Muslims. But on the other hand, if Allah was a pre-Islamic pagan deity, then its core claim is refuted. Religious claims often fall before the results of hard sciences, such as archaeology. We can endlessly speculate about the past, or we can go dig it up and see what the evidence reveals. This is the only way to find out the truth concerning the origins of Allah. As we shall see, the hard evidence demonstrates that the god Allah was a pagan deity. In fact, he was the moon god, who was married to the sun goddess, and the stars were his daughters, supposedly. So this is the, uh, this is the premise of this argument. Now I'm looking here at a picture, and it will be in the PDF to this. And it's the moon god from all four sides. It's actually a picture of Allah, a very, very old, old uh, statue carving. And they show it from four sides. And there's a crescent moon carved on his chest. And this was the original depiction of Allah. Um, So let's go further here. Archaeologists have uncovered temples to the moon god throughout the Middle East. From the mountains of Turkey to the banks of the Nile, the most widespread religion of the ancient world was the worship of the moon god. In the first literate civilization, Sumerians have left us thousands of clay tablets in which they describe their religious beliefs. As demonstrated by Sojberg and Hall, the ancient Sumerians worshipped a moon god who was called by many names. The most popular names were Nana, Sun, and Asimbabar. It's kind of a hard name to pronounce there. His symbol was the crescent moon. Given the amount of artifacts, his symbol was and still is the crescent moon. Given the amount of artifacts concerning the worship of the moon god, it is clear that this was the dominant religion of Samaria. The cult of the moon god was the most popular religion throughout ancient Mesopotamia. The Assyrians, the Babylons, and the Akkadians took the word sun and transformed it into the word sin as their favorite name for the moon god. And I, and I put in here, wow, how appropriate is that? I mean, it's literally the word S-I-N. Okay, and that was their name for the moon god, Sin. As Professor Pott points out, Sin is essentially the name of the Sumerian, is essentially Sumerian in origin, which had been borrowed by the Semites. In ancient Syria and Cana, the moon god Sin was usually represented by the moon in its crescent phase. At times, the full moon was placed inside the crescent moon to emphasize all phases of the moon. The sun goddess was the wife of Sin, and the stars were their daughters. 
For example, Ishtar, or Istar in this case, was the daughter of Sin. Sacrifices to the moon god are described in the Pas Shamara texts. In the Ugartic texts, the moon god was sometimes called Kusu. In Persia, as well as Egypt, the moon god is depicted on wall murals and on the heads of statues. He was the judge of men and gods. The Old Testament constantly rebuked the worship of the moon god. See, Deuteronomy 419, uh, 17, uh, 419, 17, 3, 2 Kings 21, 3 and 5, and 23, 5, Jeremiah 8, 2, 19, 13, and Zephaniah 1, 5, etc., when Israel fell into idolatry, it, it was usually the cult of the moon god. As a matter of fact, everywhere in the ancient world, the symbol of the crescent moon can be found on seal impressions, steels, pottery, amulets, clay tablets, cylinders, weights, earrings, necklaces, wall murals, etc. In, a, in Tel Ed Obed, a copper calf was found with a crescent moon on its forehead. An idol with the body of a bull and the head of a man has a crescent moon inlaid on its forehead with shells. In Ur, the stella of Ur-Namu was, has the crescent symbol placed on top of the register of gods because moon god was the head of the gods. Even bread was baked in the form of crescent, uh, the crescent-shaped moon as an act of devotion to the moon god. The Ur of the Chaldees was so devoted to the moon god that it was sometimes called Nanar in tablets from that time period forth. A temple of the moon god has been excavated by Ur in Ur by Sir Leonard Woolley. He dug up many examples of moon god worship in Ur, and these are displayed in the British Museum to this day. Haran was likewise noted for its devotion to the moon god. In the 1950s, a major temple to the moon god was excavated in Hazar in Palestine. Two idols in the moon god, two idols of the moon god were found. Each was a statue of a man sitting upon a throne with a crescent moon carved on his chest. The accompanying inscriptions made it clear that these were idols of the moon god. Several, several similar statues were also found where they were identified by their inscriptions as the daughters of the moon god. What about Arabia? As pointed out by Professor Kuhn, Muslims are notoriously loath to preserve traditions of earlier paganism and like to garble what pre-Islamic history they permit to survive in achronistic terms. So in other words, they, 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 they want to they keep all the stuff I'm telling you, they want to keep that way under wraps. Okay, They don't want people understanding the true... Uh, cultish pagan origins. They want to convince everyone that we all worship the same God, the three monotheistic faiths of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. They want to, they want to um, convince us of that. So, during the 19th century, Ahmad Halavi and Glacier, Glacier went to southern Arabia and dug up thousands of Sabian, Menaean, and Katabanian inscriptions, which were subsequently translated. In the 1940s, archaeologists G. Canton Thompson and Carlton S. Kuhn made some amazing discoveries in Arabia. During the 1950s, Wendell Phillips, W.F. Albright, Richard Bauer, and others excavated sites at the Kataban, Timnia, and Marib, the ancient capital of Sheba.
Thousands of inscriptions from walls and rocks in northern Arabia, Arabia have also been collected. Reliefs in votive bowls used in the worship of the daughters of Allah have also been discovered. The three daughters of Allah, Lot, Al-Uzzah, and Manat, are sometimes depicted together with Allah, the moon god, represented by a crescent moon above them. The archaeological evidence demonstrates that the dominant religion in Arabia was the cult of the moon god, and it still is. In Old Testament times, Nabadanias, who lived from 1555 to 1539 BC, the last king of Babylon, built Tamiah, Arabia, as a center to moon god worship. Sigal stated... Southern Arabia's stellar region has always been dominated by the moon god in various variations. Many scholars have also noticed that the moon god's name, Sin, is part of the Arabic words as Sinai and the wilderness of Sin, etc. When the popularity of the moon god waned elsewhere, the Arabs remained true to their conviction that the moon god was the greatest of all gods. They worshipped 360 gods at the Kaaba in Mecca, that big black building in Mecca that they all march around. The moon god was the chief deity. Mecca was in fact built as a shrine for the moon god. This is what made the most sacred site of this is what made made it the most sacred site in Arabian paganism. In 1944, G. Canton Thompson revealed in her book, The Tombs and the the Moon Temple of Hirahada, that she had uncovered a temple of the moon god in southern Arabia. The symbols of the crescent moon and no less than 21 inscriptions with the name Sin were found in the temple. An idol, which may be known as the moon god himself, was also discovered. This was later confirmed by other well-known archaeologists. The evidence reveals that the Temple of the Moon God was active even in the Christian era. Evidence gathered from both North and South Arabia demonstrate that the Moon God worship was clearly active in Muhammad's day and was still the dominant cult. According to numerous transcriptions, while the name of the Moon God was Sin, his title was Al-Ilah, which means the deity. That's not Allah, it's Al-Ilah, okay? meaning that he was the chief or the high god among the pantheon of gods, okay, that they had. Pagan. As Kuhn pointed out, the god Il, or La, was originally a phase of the moon god. The moon god was then called Al-Ilah, or the god, which was shortened to Allah in pre-Islamic times. That's where we got Allah from. Is from this this little thing I just read. The pagan Arabs even used Allah in the names they gave their children. For example, both Muhammad's father and uncle had Allah as part of their names. The fact that they were given such names by their pagan parents proves that Allah was the title for the moon god even in Muhammad's day. Professor Kuhn goes on to say, similarly, under Muhammad's tutelage, the relatively anonymous La became Allah or the God, or Allah, the Supreme Being. This fact answers the questions, why is Allah never defined in the Quran? Why did Muhammad assume that the pagan Arabs already knew who Allah was? Muhammad was raised in the religion of the moon god Allah, but he went one step further. 
than his fellow pagan Arabs. While they believed that Allah, the moon god, was the greatest of all gods and the supreme deity in the pantheon of deities at the Kaaba, the other 360 gods, Muhammad decided Allah was not only the greatest god, but truly, in his eyes, the only god. In effect, he said, look, this would be like paraphrasing what Allah, uh, Muhammad said. In effect, he said, look, you already believe the moon god Allah is the greatest of all gods. All I want you to do is accept the idea that he is the only god. I am not taking away the Allah you already worship. I am only taking away his wife and his daughters and all the other gods. This is seen from the fact that the first point of the Muslim creed is not Allah is great, but the first point is actually Allah is the greatest. In other words, he is the greatest among the gods. Okay, now that's a title that the Bible refers to God as. Okay, because there are other gods that, true, they're pagans, they're, they're fallen angelic beings, okay, but God is the greatest. Okay, so they're, 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 they're trying to put Allah in that same uh, vein as the God of the universe. And he's, he's nowhere near that. Okay, he's just, a, he's just another fallen angel that's duping billions. Okay, so let's go further. Why would Muhammad say that Allah is the greatest except in a polytheistic context? In other words, polytheistic many gods. Okay, the Arabic word is to be used in contrast, the greater from the lesser. That is true is seen from the fact that the pagan Arabs never accused Muhammad of preaching a different Allah than the one they already worshipped. This Allah was the moon god according to archaeological evidence, and evidently much of it, because we've only covered a little bit of the archaeological evidence, which is absolutely, totally overwhelming, proving this. Muhammad thus attempted to have it both ways. To the pagans, he said that he still believed in the moon god Allah, and to the Jews and Christians, he said that Allah was their god too. But both the Jews and the Christians knew better, and that is why they rejected the god Allah as a false god. Al-Kindi, one of the early Christian apologists against Islam, pointed out that Islam and its god Allah did not come from the Bible, but from the paganism of the Sabians. They did not worship the god of the Bible, but the moon god and his daughters Al-Uzza, Al Al-Lat, and Manat. Dr. Newman concludes his study of the early Christian-Muslim debates by stating, quote, Islam proved itself to be a separate, antagonistic religion which had sprung up from idolatry. The Arabs worshipped the moon god as a supreme deity, but this was not biblical monotheism. While the moon god was greater than all other gods and goddesses, at least in their eyes, this was still a polytheistic pantheon of deities. Now that we have the actual idols of the moon god, it is no longer possible to avoid the fact that Allah was a pagan god in pre-Islamic times. Is it any wonder that their symbol of Islam is a crescent moon? <laughs> I mean, I mean pretty, pretty bad when, when you got you know all these statues they're digging up with a crescent moon and they're all the moon god and then you have that as your primary symbol as your religion, okay? I mean, it's not exactly, you know, if you're trying to convince me this is the God of the Bible, that's not exactly going to increase my uh, uh, faith in that. And then that the crescent moon sits on top of their mosques and minarets, that a crescent moon is found on the flags of the Islamic nations, that the Muslims fast during the month which begins and ends with the appearance of the crescent moon in the sky. Think about that. They begin... They're, they're, they begin and end their fast with the appearance of the crescent moon in the sky. That is how devoted they are to the crescent moon god, Allah. 
The pagan Arabs worshipped the moon god, Allah, by praying toward Mecca several times per day, making a pilgrimage to Mecca, running around the temple of the moon god, called the Kaaba, kissing the black stone, killing an animal sacrifice to the moon god, and throwing stones at the devil, and so on. I watched an internet documentary from like National Geographic online the other night, and it was about this pilgrimage to Mecca. I had never seen this a documentary on this before. And it, it documented... Like, there was one guy that came from Africa, there was one guy that came from, like, Indonesia, and there was an American doctor, woman, pretty woman, that came from America. A, an American woman, I mean, she, she, was, she was Irish descent, okay? And, oh my word, I, it, just, it just reinforced what an evil, evil devil religion this is. And all of the satanic hoops that Satan makes you jump through in this. It really reminds me of high-level black witchcraft because when you get into the black stuff, you've really got to jump through a lot of hoops to make Satan happy. And you'll never make him happy because he, he's a cruel taskmaster. But this is what Islam reminds me of. I mean, you got to, you know, it's mandatory. you got to pray, whatever, five times a day to Mecca. And you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And, and all of this garbage, all of this veneer of this, of this sanctimonious false religion that they try to put on, okay? Like, they're so much better than everyone else. And all of the stuff you got to do when you make this pilgrimage to Mecca, and I believe that any good Muslim is supposed to make this pilgrimage, I believe, at least once in their lifetime. And all of the satanic garbage they have to go through, like when they were throwing the stones at this pillar, and the pillar supposedly represents Satan, and, and then they were saying how, how many people had actually been killed and trampled just getting to, because you have to take up like 30-something stones or 50-something stones, and you have to have them in your hand, and then you got to go, you got to throw each one individually and try to hit the pillar. It's like some stupid video game you're playing or something. you gotta, you got to, you know, trying to hit something, you know, and there's all these millions and millions and millions of stones because there's millions of people there in this pilgrimage. you got to dress a certain way. you got to, like, the women have to dress a certain way. The men have to dress a certain way. you got to do this. you got to, oh, my word. I mean, it, it never ends. you got to eat a certain way. You, you've got to, I mean, it is so evil. And I, it was, I guess it was just so disturbing because this, this, this white woman from America, I mean, she just came to the conclusion that this was the way. And I thought to myself, a religion that treats women the way that they treat women, degrading, beheading them, raping them, and if you are raped and you have to have like four uh, family members see the rape for it to actually be confirmed, and if you do anything that you know your husband doesn't perceive, he can accuse you of this, and they can have you stoned or beheaded. And all of the satanic, and then the fact that they can take temporary wives and rape little girls and, and have multiple marriages and things of this nature. I cannot believe that a, a woman from America, a doctor, a highly educated woman, could come to that conclusion that, oh yeah, yeah, this is the way. This is definitely what I want. And she stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, she dressed, from a Muslim standpoint, very ostentatious. I mean, it was, it was almost like she was trying to draw attention to herself, is the, the impression that I got. She was very tall and... I don't know. But, yeah, she, uh, she was head, head um, hook, line, and sinker for, for Islam. You never know what demons a person might be open to. And evidently, there was something about this religion that demonically appealed to her. And just, um, it, it's just the quintessential essence of a false religion. I mean, it was really 
honestly sickening to watch the documentary. It was it was it was gut wrenching to watch it because of all of the of the things these people have to do to satisfy Satan essentially. Okay, and yet they're all going to hell. Every single in fact, you can't even get. In Mecca, unless you're Islamic, she had to do all the stuff to prove that she was actually a true Muslim, in order to even go. You cannot go to that city unless you're a Muslim. You cannot get in at all, ever. That's how much uh, the the uh, I guess the racism and the segregation that goes on in that particular uh, religion. So anyway, it was it was it was very. Um, Disturbing, I guess, to say the least. And then they walk. They 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 showed them all walking around the Kaaba and all this garbage they got to do. And there's this black stone there, and they're all trying to touch that big black building, the Kaaba. And they they were telling how much they they paid every year. It was like into the millions and millions and millions just for the covering on the Kaaba that has to be renewed every year. This covering that black actually it's not a black building, it's a stone building and it's a big cloth black covering that has gold thread in it. Real like it's gold, some type of gold thread and it's millions of dollars just to do that. The the waste of the sheer utter waste of money that is devoted toward the propagation. I was thinking, oh my word, if they just took that money and gave it to the poor or, or I mean, you could you could feed all the Middle East easily, you know. But no, 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 it's wasted on some devil, some devil that's taking them straight to hell. Now I know you could say that about a lot of things, but there's just a lot of things when I was watching it that um. Oh, anyway, Muslims claim that Allah is the God of the Bible and that Islam rose from the religion of the prophets and the apostles is refuted by solid, overwhelming archaeological evidence. Islam is nothing more than a revival of the ancient mood god cult. It has taken the symbols, the rites, the ceremonies, and even the name of its gods from the ancient pagan religion of the moon god. As such, it is sheer idolatry and must be rejected by all those who follow the Bible. So hopefully we put that one to bed. Okay, this whole Chrislam movement... That's why I put that right behind that article. To unequivocally prove that Islam is pure idolatry, pure paganism, and it has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Okay, next article. New video. Al-Laki says, kill Americans without hesitation. Yemi radical cleric Anwar al-Alarki Al-Laki, I'm sorry, has called for the killing of Americans without hesitation. Um, This particular news source said on Monday, don't consult, and here's a quote from him, don't consult with anybody in killing the Americans. Fighting the devil doesn't require consultation or prayers seeking divine guidance. This is what he's talking about us now, or or anyone that would be considered an infidel, I believe, a non-believer in Islam. They are the party of the devils, isn't it funny how they're accusing Americans of the very thing they're so guilty of, and yet they're so demonically blinded, they call good evil and evil good. I mean, I've never seen a religion that calls good evil and evil good like this one does. We are two opposites who will never come together. In the 23-minute Arabic language message entitled, Make It Known and Clear to Mankind, al Alaki said that for Americans and Muslims, it was either us or them. Born in New Mexico. This guy was born in New Mexico? 
Al-Awaki, but he lives in Yemen now, has used his website and English language sermons to encourage Muslims around the world to kill U.S. troops in Iraq. Um, he was also linked to the underwear bomber as well as Major Nadal Hassan, the army psychiatrist, accused of killing 13 people. Oh, he did. Uh, in the four, November 4 Hood shooting in Texas. And then there's a new video. Well, you can watch the video of it. I, you know, it's just horrific. Next, next thing, and this is a video. The spread of homegrown terrorism, Islamic training camps in America's backyard. Why these communities are left to flourish in the U.S. Now again, we talked about TSA last time. And how they're so concerned about terrorism. And yet most likely, now we're learning that they're probably going to make sure that they don't have to pat down the very source of the reason that supposedly we got the um, scanners in the first place. Which are Muslims. And particularly, maybe it's just going to be Muslim women. I don't know. But they're, they're coming over the border in droves. There's, there's terrorist cells all over America. And they've been for years. And they're just getting ready. They're getting ready for whenever they get the green light. Okay, and again, this is going to be maximum shock and awe, most likely, when all the stuff starts to go down. And I told, I played that video not too long ago where the one guy, the Muslim cleric guy, was saying, okay, listen, you take a suitcase of anthrax, you can kill like a million Americans. I mean, what a deal. Can you imagine your reward from Allah? And he, and he was so matter-of-fact and so just like, yeah, you, you just got to kill as many as you possibly can. And, and this is an ideal way to do it. And... um the evil that emanates through these 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 uh, men, particularly the religious leaders, the demon possession. I tell you, it's just about unlike anything I've ever seen. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and watch this video here, and um, or listen to this video, and see what about the Islamic training camps that they've got. The group is responsible for over 50 attacks on U.S. soil and has over 35 compounds right here in our very own nation. Now, a new investigation by the Christian Action Network has uncovered some disturbing information about the spread of homegrown terrorists and what they mean for America. It's a frightening thought. Islamic terrorist training camps right here in America in our backyards. The group Muslims of America, or Jamaat al-Fruqa, as they're called in Pakistan, have established over 35 communities across the U.S. The group claims to be peaceful, but a videotape uncovered by the Christian Action Network shows that they can have a much more sinister side. The video called The Soldiers of Allah features Sheikh Mubarak Ali Ghanali, the mastermind and the leader of the group here in the U.S. We are establishing training camps who can reach us, you know, at the uh, University offices in upstate New York, or in Canada, or in Michigan, or in South Carolina, or in Pakistan, wherever we are, you can reach us. The tape goes on to teach Golani's American followers tactics in guerrilla warfare including scaling mountains, subduing enemies, murdering guards, hijacking cars, kidnapping, weapons training, and setting off explosives. Galani is a Pakistani national best known for allegedly setting up journalist Daniel Pearl in 2002. Pearl was on the way to meet with him when he was abducted and eventually gruesomely beheaded, armed with the, quote, soldier of... And yet they allow this devil to operate on our soil and set up training camps, and he's already committed flagrant murder. And they're showing these training videos from them. It's not our training videos. It's their footage where they're, they're you know, doing all the stuff that, that he just mentioned. 
you know, how to make bombs, how to kill people, how to assassinate. And, and again, this is all just going on, and, and our government's not doing a thing about any of it. ...training video and a history of Galani's terrorist rhetoric, investigators went to several of the compounds to confront his followers. You are a liar, and you are a liar. Don't say another word. Understand? They were met with denial, hostility, and in some cases, even violence. Clearly looks like either knife holes or bullet holes. And the question remains, why are they... They're showing an American flag, which they had torn in half and have there's knife holes in it. And they were showing, going by one of their compounds, and the guy hit the, with the car with a crowbar. This is going on in America. I mean, they're just, they're just, I just honestly believe from, from a very early age, the, the Islamic um, people are just taught to be just total habitual liars. I mean, they just deny when, whenever anything is uh, they're presented with any kind of truth regarding the true nature of their religion. They're just such liars. And, and that's what they default That's what they default to. And if that doesn't work, then they get violent. You know, so this is what we're dealing with. This community has been left to flourish here in the U.S. And is it only a matter of time before this anger spills on over into a violent incident? And Martin Moyer now joins us. 35 facilities in the U.S. Tell me this. Tell me this is not true. And how does this continue to exist? Well, there's 35 compounds, villages, communities that Sheikh Jalani has inside the United States. They range anywhere from the east coast of York, South Carolina, to the west coast, Seattle, Washington, Hancock, New York, down to Texas. Knowing the extremism that you're talking about, that he advocates here, and this, this is not in dispute, correct? No, it's not in dispute. Then, then why would the United States government allow these facilities to stay open? Well, we spent two and a half years investigating this group. And during that time, we interviewed law enforcement about why these groups, why these facilities are allowed to exist in the United States. We got a host of reasons. But the number one reason is they are protected by the U.S. Constitution and they are protected by state constitutions in the United States. Really, law enforcement hands are tied in trying to shut these groups down. I, I, I want you to explain to our audience here, because you're describing this particular man, his involvement, you say, in the, in the Daniel Pearl you know, beheading. Um, how certain are you that every one of those compounds shares the radical views? We went to seven of these compounds. We had the Soldiers of Valor videotape, which your viewers just watched. And we said, we're going to set out on a mission. We're going to visit the seven compounds we were aware of and ask their leaders to watch this tape, either accept or reject Sheikh Jalani's call to be an Islamic rule of warfare training camp. None of them rejected that tape. How is he connected specifically to each and every compound? Well, each and every compound is owned by a group called Muslims of America. Muslims of America in the United States is their American name for a group based in Pakistan called Jamaat al-Fukra. Which is the one that he is, and these are his words, and this is what his advocacy is. So in other words, let me guess, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, so that when you went to these seven compounds of the 35, if you were to, if they were to condemn the statements of him, that would mean to them what? Well, for them what? Actually, none of them would condemn him. These people believe Sheikh Jalani is the direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, that he speaks for the Prophet Muhammad. They follow him with utmost loyalty. They believe basically he is speaking for the word of Allah. 
They will not condemn him. They will not criticize him. That's what we learned. As a matter of fact, in one camp in Jessup, Georgia, one of the leaders watched the Soldiers of Allah videotape and said, what's wrong with Sheikh Jalani setting up paramilitary training camps inside the United States? I encourage your viewers to watch this tape. Just see what happens. Do you think, do you think Jelani's facilities in the U.S. are planning attacks on American cities and, and ha- it's almost unimaginable in a, in a post-9-11 world that that could exist. You're saying you think that they're planning, plotting, scheming the next attack against the American Americans. Not only do I believe that, not only will people who watch this documentary believe that, but even the law enforcement officials that we have spoken with, not the ones based in Washington, D.C., but the field officers, they believe that. We've well, had law enforcement tell us they have... Weapons of mass destruction that they... What, no, what, what kind of weapons of mass destruction? Well, in some cases I can't uh, even tell you, Sean, because the confidential information that was given to me by these particular law enforcement officials... So you're saying without, without a doubt you can look in these cameras tonight and tell the American people that there are terrorist training camps on our soil, we're not doing anything about it, and they're planning and they will hit America. I would say without a doubt... Al-Qaeda would love to have such compounds that range from 25 acres to 300 acres sitting on American soil right. in order to hide terrorists, hide weapons, and train future jihadists for the United States. It's shocking. Oh, Mr. Moore, I, it's shocking. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Okay, so that was that video. And... Uh, <clears throat> Again, they're letting them pour over the borders. They've been doing this for years. They mean, they've been here for decades, okay? And they have been stockpiling weapons. The, the weapons of mass destruction they're in reference to are most likely things like anthrax and thing, biological agents because you can do a lot of maximum damage with something like that. And whereas a dirty nuclear bomb is going to leave a nuclear signature, it's going to leave some type of signature that can be picked up via satellites. Whereas anthrax and these types of things won't do that. So they've got a lot of different tricks up their sleeves, and I think it's just going to be part of this end-time potential collapse that is coming to America. And um, part of, most likely, God's judgment, because we have, for the most part, as America, turned our back on the Lord. And when that happens, typically you can look in the Bible what happens to those nations that do such a thing. And we read um, in last week's teaching the Deuteronomy verses. Uh, regarding what this is what's going to happen to you and about famine and sicknesses and plagues and, and your enemies see, besieging you and you know you finding no rest and you being scattered throughout the world and, and honestly I, I think that's what we're, we're looking at from a corporate standpoint I believe the remnant the body of Christ um, you know the Bible says you know in Luke Jesus Christ said Pray that you be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Pray that you be counted worthy to escape all the things that are coming before the earth, coming on the earth, and to stand before the Son of Man. And this should be part of our prayer um, regarding that in our families. So, next article: Islamist, Islamist insurgents in Iraq threaten wave of attacks on Christians. The Islamist State of Iraq, or ISI, claim responsibility for an attack on Roman Catholic Church in Baghdad on Sunday evening. We will open upon them the doors of destruction and rivers of blood, said a statement posted on a militant website by the ISI and Al-Qaeda front group. So here they kill they kill um, 42 Catholics, and I don't call them Christians because that's what they are all being called. Catholics are not Christians, okay? Catholics are a part of the biggest pagan, white witchcraft, pseudo-Christian death cult on the planet. 
That's all I view that that religion as, and I've done very many teachings exposing them. So it's very, very sad that 42 Catholics most likely plunged into hell as a result of these of these attacks. They were not born-again Bible-believing Christians by any stretch of the imagination. It's still a horrific thing, and it's not, it's not you know, I take no pleasure in, in any of this. I pray to God that the Catholics would get saved, and the, the um, people in Islam would get saved as well, and we should pray for that. But this is what was posted, and the um, Al-Qaeda, or, or this ISI, said that we will open up upon them the doors of destruction and the rivers of blood. The ISI claimed responsibility for an attack on the Roman Catholic Church in Baghdad on Sunday evening, which 42 Catholics, at least 6 police, and 9 assailants dead. While Iraqi Christians and Catholics have been under siege since the fall of Saddam Hussein, the sudden public threat marks a new development. All Christian centers, organizations, and institutions, leaders and followers are legitimate targets for the Mujahideen, holy warriors, wherever they can reach them, the ISI said. So see, as things escalate regarding Islam, as their true colors start to show more and more and more, those places where they're already dominant, they're just going to start wiping out the populations of infidels, and particularly they're going to try to target, I mean, there's probably no Jews there at all, but the uh, other group they're going to try to target are the Christians. And then it it went on to say, it called the Pope, who issued a letter of condolence over the killings, quote, the hallucinating tyrant of the Vatican. Well, I agree with him about that, but, and then they said, and said Christians would be expatriated and dispersed uh, from Iraq. Half of all the 800,000 Christians who remain in Iraq by the time of the 2003 invasion have since fled the country after waves of bombings and shootings. The threat of more violence appeared to confirm fears in Washington and report the stability of Iraq might be years away. Yeah. Well, again, you know, we're over there trying to, you know, secure the oil. We're over there guarding the poppy seed plants over there so that they can make opium. Uh, stealing the oil, garden poppy seed plants, doing all these horrific things, using depleted uranium in the rounds that have left, you know, and it's no wonder they hate us. It's no wonder. So I don't want to just give a, a one-sided impression saying, you know, there's no reason for them to hate us. because. But understand, our government did that on purpose so that they would hate us, so that we would become their target, so that they would come over here and do the very things they're planning on doing now. Because, see, they're viewing this as payback time. They're viewing this as we go over there and, and we use biologics and we use depleted uranium on their populations and they're having all kind of deformed bursts and these types of things. And if you don't believe me, go up to um, the deprogrammed films uh, site that I gave last time or, or do a keyword search for Beyond Treason and see our own military being interviewed saying how we have used depleted uranium. It's no mystery. It's no secret. And what depleted uranium does to the reproductive system and what it does to offspring of the people that are breathing this stuff in. And you see these horrific, I mean, beyond deformed births that are taking place over there. It's no wonder they hate our guts. You know? So... Our corporate war machine over there, over there to secure the oil and to guard the poppy seed plants so that we can keep the heroin flowing. And that's admitted. That is admitted that we're doing that. I've seen documentaries where they're interviewing generals over there saying, yeah, we're, we're guarding the poppy seed plants because if we, we kill them, they'd have no source of income. Over. Oh, right. 
That's, that's noble. That's noble. You would think if we were really over there for the cause of righteousness, we'd be over there destroying, you know, that mind-altering plant. It, no, no, we're doing the exact opposite. We're protecting it. We're protecting it. So, you know, it's, it's no wonder that they hate our guts. Um, it, all it's doing is fueling their hatred toward us. It's all being done on purpose. Here's another article. Um, this is Palestinian terrorist Amin al-Hindi was one of the senior planners of the murders of the 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Okay, Killed seven in, or 11 innocent Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. This, this Palestinian terrorist, okay, this devil did this. This week's fifth sitting of the Fatah Revolutionary Council headed by Mamun Abbas was named in his honor. This is how sick, twisted, demented, and demented these Muslims are. Particularly at the highest levels. The picture of the meeting, and I give you the picture right here in, in the thing, the picture of the meeting shows Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas sitting in the center of the table, and the text on the banner behind him reads, Palestinian National Liberation Movement, Fatah, fifth sitting of the Revolutionary Council, and then it says, Shaheed, which means martyr, Commander Amin al-Hindi. So they've got this banner in the background with this guy's name being honored on the banner as a martyr. A martyr? Satan's martyr? He killed 11 innocent Israeli athletes at, a, at an Olympics? He's a coward. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm sure they're there with guns or anything like that. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they're defenseless. That's the way that the uh, Muslims like to kill people. The ones that are defenseless. Well, they're much easier to kill. They're, they're cowards. Earlier this year, the official Palestinian... Uh, Palestinian Authority Daily described the participation in the Olympic massacre saying that he was one of the stars who sparkled at the sports stadium. This is how sick and twisted. I mean, we're, we're talking some serious uh, uh, stuff here. Oh, here, it's not even, that's not even the full quote. Let me read you the whole quote. Here it is. Early this year, the official... Palestinian Authority Daily described his participation, this, this, this guy who killed 11 innocent Israelis, in the Olympic massacre, saying that he was, quote, one of the stars who sparkled in the sports stadium in Munich. Quote, that's a quote. The attack itself was referred to, was referred to as, quote, just one of the many, many shining stations in his life. I mean, that is beyond sick. It would it'd be like almost giving glory to a serial killer. You know? But it's the only religion I know of on the planet that openly does this. And this is why I so feel as though it needs to be exposed. Because this, this isn't something that should just be ignored. This should be exposed at every turn. This evil, this wickedness. Let's go further. Oh, let's see here. Okay, this next article. Furious, British Airways says it would allow a Muslim veil, but not the cross of Christianity. 
British Airways has been accused of appalling double standards after admitting Muslim staff may be allowed to wear veils just weeks after it sent a Christian home for wearing a cross. Again, more unbelievable hypocrisy that we're seeing from companies cowering to the mighty Muslims, to the mighty God of Allah, because they don't want to offend them. Now, they can go around and blow up people and kill people and blow up buildings and do all that they want, but the moment that, you know, anything is brought into question regarding them, you know, they just go nuts. Check-in worker Nadia Iwuda has been on unpaid leave for a month after the airline banned her from wearing a tiny cross on her necklace over her uniform. The uh, British Airways added further insult to injury yesterday when, she, when it said she can return to work wearing her cross, but only if she accepts a backroom job where she will not come in contact with the public. Well, she might offend a Muslim, evidently. Hours later, the airline's muddled thinking was confirmed when a spokesman said any request from a stewardess or, or uninformed staff to wear a, a full-face what they call naqab, would be given serious consideration. Okay, that would be that would be if they were if they, if they wanted to wear this full face Muslim naqab. Okay, that's okay though. It's, it's, that's going to give um, serious consideration. The request would be subject to a rigorous review, taking into account practicality, health, safety, and security regulations. Said the spokesman. Uh, MP described the latest development as ludicrous, while Miss Uwuda said the suggestion that she should take a backroom job was morally degrading. She demanded to know why she had to hide her faith from public when the Muslims and the Sikhs can openly display theirs by wearing hajib, I don't even know how to pronounce this, hajabs, turbans, and possibly a full-face veil. British Airways says Miss Yuuda's cross is a breach of its strict dress code. She said, this is unfair, they're telling me to be out of sight, why should I be hiding away in a non-uniform position when my Muslim and Sikh colleagues can be seen in public? Unbelievable. And then she goes on to say, it's as though the cross is taboo. Despite all the people who have backed me, British Airways is still anti-cross. What's wrong with a little cross? I don't see why I should be ostracized and hidden away. This is a threat for other people and their freedoms to express their faith. If I go back to work, I will be wearing my cross for everyone to see. I will not resign. They will have to sack me. The 55-year-old Heathrow check-in worker can return to her old job in uniform if she agrees to remove her cross. But she has refused to do so as a matter of principle. British Airway would, uh, World Cargo General Manager Mark Gardner said in the letter that the company needed more time to consider the complaint. Miss Uwuda had brought against the airline and in her final decision uh, would be on whether she was allowed to wear a cross would be made in three weeks. Three weeks, like it takes that long. And then, again, he said, you can return to work immediately provided you adhere to the current uniform standards. Sources also pointed out that turbans and hijabs are supplied to the staff in British Airway colors as a part of their uniform. (laughs) That's okay. They'll help you out on that. But don't you dare wear anything that has anything to do with, with Christianity, or you're out. But critics have accused the airline of hypocrisy not only because of bangles, turbans, and hijabs are allowed, but also because the cross of St. George is, dis- is displayed as part of the Union flag on the tail fin of the aircraft. 
Miss Awuda has now launched a second complaint against the airline over its decision to suspend her from work without pay, despite a senior executive being given paid gardening leave. Gardening leave? That's what it says. Amid a criminal investigation into alleged price fixing. Commercial director Martin George was paid £425,000 a year salary for five months while on leave before he resigned earlier this month. He was also paid a notice period of 12 months salary, despite admitting that inappropriate conversations may have taken place in his department. Head of communications, Ian Burns, who also resigned, was paid six months of £150,000 salary when he left the firm over, um, from over the row. Over the row, whatever that means. Conservative former minister Anne Whittacombe, who has cut up her British Airway executive card in disgust at the airline, said, this is ludicrous. Either someone can wear their cross to work or they cannot. We all need to know once and for all. I just thought I'd throw that in because, I mean, it seemed pertinent to what we were, what we were actually talking about here. Um, okay, let's go, let's see here. Let's go to the second part here. Uh, this is uh, we're going to shift gears here. This is about a biotech company who that secretly released the uh, genetically modified mosquitoes in the Cayman Islands, uh, playing God here. This is from Natural News. Scientists at British uh, at the British biotechnological giant Oxitec recently developed a genetically modified Franken mosquito, like a Frankenstein mosquito. Is what I threw that in there that apart from a scientific chemical antibiotic, is unable to successfully repopulate. And the company recently released millions of these GM mosquitoes, genetically modified, in the Cayman Islands to see what would happen. And they did so without proper approval or announcement, prompting outrage by experts and the public over the known consequences of conducting such an irresponsible experiment. Oxitec released the mosquitoes last year, but only has just recently let the public know about it. The company has attempted to justify its decision by claiming its GM mosquitoes may help spread the fight of dengue fever by reducing or eliminating the wild mosquito population. But nobody knows what happens when these GM mosquitoes interact with other animals or humans, or how their altered genes will disrupt disrupt the living environment. Seemingly content with its decision to hide the trial from public from the public initially, Oxitec had the audacity to announce at the recent annual meeting of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene that its trial was successful. But how the company can make such preposterous statements without knowledge of the long-term effects is irreversible. Um, of its irreversible decision is mind-boggling. Oxitec considers its trial, quote, successful. Just days after the experiment has ended, explained Kathy Jo Wetter, a research at the Action Group of Erosion Technology and Cooperation. She said, quote, unintended impacts on the environment cannot be known, and Oxitec's unproven technology could make things worse in the long term. There is, and there's no case, uh, there's no possibility of recall if something goes wrong. I mean, how are you going to recall, uh, hey, all you mosquitoes, come back. We, we, we made a mistake. Okay, come on. I mean, be reasonable. What are you going to do, reason with them? Anyway, um, then she says, who takes responsibility in that case? Not only are mosquitoes a necessary, necess, necessary component of the natural food chain, representing the prey of various creatures like birds and bats, but they also are important pollinators in the same way that bees are. I wasn't fully aware of all that. Even though they appear to be a nuisance, without them, the entire food chain would collapse. Wow, that's not good. And then there's other links you can click on here. 
Um, do-it-yourself natural tips for backyard mosquito control systems, natural mosquito uh, repellents you can use right now, natural oils to prevent mosquito bites, catnip, clove, neem, and lemon. Uh, I've also heard that Listerine, if you put that in a spray bottle, that is actually a mosquito repellent as well. Um, and then use natural non-toxic pest control without resorting to dangerous pesticides. And then also the insect repellent DEET, D-E-E-D-E-E-T, is toxic to brain cells. That DEET stuff is nasty. And that's the main ingredient in like off in, in those, those uh, mosquito repellents that you buy. Well, of course, they're trying to kill us. They're going to try to use the most toxic chemicals possible. Well, that stuff is toxic to brain cells, among other things. DEET is like death, is what they should call it. Very, very bad stuff. So, if you didn't know that, you do now. Next article, pharma researchers working on drugs to erase your memories. Uh, again, this is by Natural News. Drug researchers are working on mind-altering chemicals that could erase your memories. It's all been pursued under the umbrella of, quote, mental health, with claims that this could help victims of emotional trauma. The idea that you can, quote, heal a patient by chemically lobotomizing them is, of course, entirely consistent with the core mythology of modern medicine. Quote, if something's wrong, you should just either poison it, burn it out, irritate it, or cut it out, and then pronounce the patient, quote, healed. That's the way they treat things in medicine. In the case of memory-erasing drugs, scientists are, reported, are reportedly working on a drug that would remove certain proteins from the brain's fear centers. This is based on a ludicrous idea, by the way, that memories are recorded solely by physical proteins in the brain, an idea that is obviously based on an entirely outmoded mechanistic model of the human mind and brain. Then again, modern medicine seems to be hopelessly stuck in the dark ages anyway, believing that there must be some chemical cure for everything. Well, hey, they got to use pharmacia to cure everything, right? This is where we get the root word for sorcery, pharmacy, pharmacia, pharma, you know, that's where we get the root word for sorcery in the Bible. And I did a whole study on pharmacia, and in that you can access up on um, contendingfortruth.com in the download section or in the other. Uh, when I put out an email on the newsletter list, uh, you can you can um, see the other links I've got up there in, uh, to other resources or other ways you can get to my teachings as well. Uh, let's see. Let me just read that again. Then again, modern medical science seems to be hopelessly stuck in the dark ages, believing that there must be a chemical cure for everything. Hence, the ongoing waste of billions of dollars searching for a cancer cure as if it were some sort of acquired infection. See, cancer is something you have to earn. Something you have to earn. Cancer can only form in a body that has the right terrain, terrain internally for its formation. What we should be doing is creating an inhospitable terrain in the environment, in, in our bodies, so that the cancer cannot form. That's what we should be doing. Okay? Nobel Prize winner in health, uh, Otto Warburg, said two thing, cancer has to have two things for its formation. Now, I believe it's much more complicated than that nowadays. Maybe back when he won the Nobel Prize, it was this simple. But nowadays it's not. They're doing, they're doing way too many things and giving us way too many things that causes cancer. But one of the two main things are there has to be glucose present in the system. In other words, cancer feeds on sugars. Carbohydrates break down into sugars. So if you've got somebody with cancer, what you want to do is put them on a carb-restricted diet. Okay, You don't want to be uh, giving them a lot of fruit juices and things of this nature because you're feeding the cancer. 
I don't care if it's carrot juice. It still converts to glucose. Okay, glucose feeds cancer. He found that cancer has to have two things for its formation. Glucose, okay, which is basically the end-stage byproduct of carbohydrate breakdown, and a lack of oxygen. Okay, so cancer lives in what they call an anaerobic environment, meaning without oxygen. So if you flood your body with oxygen and you restrict glucose, those two things alone will help you quite a bit. And if you just did those two things alone, there would be a lot less people getting cancer. Now, there's a lot of other things they're trying to do now. According to EPA, we're exposed up to 70,000 different chemicals per day. Of those, the vast majority are carcinogenic. So, again, they're trying to kill us on a lot of different levels. You've got chemtrails, you've got the fluoridation of the water, you've got the chlorination of the water. You've got all the drugs that they're doing. You've got all the chemicals they're pumping into the food supply, the water chain, the air, you name it. You've got chemicals outgassing in furniture and plastics, things of this nature, things you store things in, plastic bottles. I mean, you name it. It all causes cancer. It's all by design to kill us off because they want to depopulate the planet. We're just pesky. And we don't die like they want us to die. Okay? Because God made us, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, every time they try to turn around and do something to try to kill us off more, it just doesn't work out like they planned. So, again, this is why I believe they believe they're going to have to get a lot more aggressive with their approach in order to get, you know, anywhere from a 70 to 95% reduction of population, which is what the New World Order boys are hoping for. And, again, I'm not just saying that so you know, to scare you, but also so you can pray about it in these these things as well. Um, Kate Farenhole, executive director of the Mental Health Support and Information Group in Maryland, says completely deleting a memory, assuming it's one's memory, is a little scary. How do you remove a memory without removing a whole part of someone's life? And is it best to even do that, considering that people grow and exper- uh, grow and learn from their experiences? And that was from a secular viewpoint. She even saw the craziness of the whole thing. Uh, let's see here. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end this for now. I'm going to pick up the other parts of this uh, teaching that I said I was going to get into this week. I'm going to pick them up next week's teaching, and um, we'll go from there. So I'll go ahead and end this out in a, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time and this day you've given us, Lord, for uh, having the ability to come together again in another teaching, Lord. I pray you bless my listeners, Lord. Uh, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ over them. I pray your angels would encamp around about them, around about the remnant and the body of Christ, around about, Lord God, the, the poor and the innocent and the weak and the meek and those that cannot defend themselves and the unborn babies in the womb, the widows and the orphans and the, and the babies and the children, Lord God, that are out there. I pray, God, for your protective hand to be upon them, that you would give them food to eat, water to drink, shelter, Lord, that you would supply all their needs, according to your riches in Christ Jesus, that you would forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form, as we forgive those who have sinned against us, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, that you would totally direct us regarding these matters that we bring up on a weekly basis, on how to pray, on how to fast, on what to do about it. Um, Because I know you have to have a plan, Lord God. I mean, you said my children are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, you've given us a lot of knowledge, Lord. I just pray to God we act on the knowledge in an appropriate biblical manner and that your name be glorified and that many would be saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of these teachings and as a result of your truth and your word going forth. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.